Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. Well, folks, it's 101, and I'll tell you why we're late, because I had to take a leak. That's what happens when you get to my age, people. Just these things happen, but this is Market Call. I am Guy Adami. It is 101 p.m. Eastern Time, and Dan Nathan is out there in Europe. He's in Rome, sweltering heat, but I have the great pleasure, the honor to bring in my friend, Demo, Danny Moses, for the entire half hour. And if it gets off the rails, it's entirely my fault. Today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, Danny, where risk, in fact, meets opportunity. And the risk is out there. We're powered by Open Exchange. Danny, thanks for joining. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm glad you made it. I'm happy to be here. And it is all about CME, about the Fed fund future still at this moment. That's what's driving the market. I don't know we're going to talk about that. So no, no question about it. It's interesting. You know, you... You, know, you thought we'd see the moves we're seeing, and we're going to talk about all that in a second, but you've been clairvoyant, and I don't know who she is, but you've been her since this time last summer. You talked about a lot of the things happening that people are like, there's no way, and now right before our very eyes, it is. One thing that we talked about in the fall was the geopolitical risk out there, and you know what? Sort of front and center right now, obviously now everybody's talking about Nancy Pelosi's trip uh, to Taiwan, and the market is seemingly picking up on it as well, so... You know, you're talking about tensions again, geopolitical tensions. You know, we talked about Russia, Ukraine in the fall as well. I'm surprised this China-Taiwan situation hasn't boiled over sooner, but but here we are. And my question to you is, and we're going to have a question from one of our audience members, is the market just sort of whistling past the graveyard here? A lot of things to be concerned about. Market doesn't seem to care. Yeah, I mean, there's so many negatives. What was that great movie? A negative times a negative equals a positive, I guess. I'm not sure, but it certainly doesn't feel great. And when you have to worry, I realize it's a much bigger deal than just sending U.S. diplomat over to Taiwan at this time. Why create something? The truth is, if you can't send a U.S. diplomat over to Taiwan, that sends a, I mean, and that's going to create havoc in the market. That tells you how fragile everything is. So not to get political right or wrong, the whole thing to me is, just, and that's why I think we're going to talk about gold too, why gold is starting to get a bit. It's starting to incorporate a lot of that stuff. And But Guy, I know we've been talking for a long time on our podcasts and other areas that geopolitical risk in general is underpriced into the risk it brings into the markets. And I think we're kind of numb now after what happened in Ukraine and what's still going on in Ukraine that everything else seems secondary to it. But that's just as big of an issue, if not bigger, possibly. So Yeah, I, I agree with that. And listen, we've had, we've had people go to Taiwan for years um, without without really anything happening. I think last year, 
think there were a number of Republicans went as well, and nobody seemed to care. Obviously, it's a little bit different this time. And you wonder if the saber rattling from China is just that or if there's going to be some real teeth behind it. I don't know how it shakes out. But again, I don't think the market is fully pricing these things. Let's take a look at the S&P chart because, you know, since June 15th, we have had a pretty nice bounce off the bottom. We traded down to 36.35 or thereabouts. That was the day of the Fed meeting. The ensuing day, obviously, had a big sell-off on the back of a surprise rate hike by the Swiss National Bank. You know, we'll look at some of these European yields in a second as well. And now we've bounced. If you look at the moving averages still rolling over here, we talked about that yesterday with Carter. I think the market's done what it needed to do to the upside. You know, here we are, 4150 or thereabouts. What are your thoughts? Because, you know, you went a, a while ago from being bearish to being scared. That was correct. Um, I'm just thinking your thoughts here because nothing fundamentally has changed, in my opinion, to sort of assuage any of the concerns that you've had. I agree. I don't think what's changed. What would change would be people think there's a quote pivot by the Fed since that Fed meeting last week that hasn't seemed to be the case. Um, I do think data will continue to come in uh, that will show inflation is coming down slightly, but still at very elevated levels. The next Fed meeting is not until September 21st. There's Jackson Hole between that. There's a lot of Fed speakers out there. And the irony here is that the more that people pivot to that dovishness, you get a rise in commodity prices. You, you know, you get a rise in these things, which then feed into inflation. So it becomes self-fulfilling that the Fed won't be done. So, you know, I, I find it ironic that the market would rally on that. I only think it can go so far before it realizes the implications of it. So no, while inflation, I think, has come down, I think we're going to start to see a lot of economic data, which will look worse than relative to inflation coming down. And I said this last week, the same people last year that thought inflation was transitory are the same people that believe somehow we can negotiate a soft landing here. And I don't think that's the case. That being said, you know, take a look at some of these earnings. Stop looking at the market and just in just S&P level. Granular, start to look down at certain sectors that are beaten up. Look for names, right, that are trading in an ETF of a sector in retail that maybe doesn't deserve to be as low. So there's a lot of ways you can take advantage, both on the upside and the downside of this. But in no means, no way do I think we are through this. And I've been saying now for a couple of weeks that August is going to be that August, the ones we've had in the past in 2011, 2015. It just feels that way with all the crap going on in the world. So feels that way to me as well. And on Thursday, we're going to sit down with Vinnie Daniel and Porter Collins. You'll be there as well. That's going to be a fun conversation, a timely conversation. What's interesting is, you know, we had that booked well in advance, but it's really perfect timing to hear from those guys as well for our On The Tape podcast. But I'll say this, you know, quickly, and I don't want to get sort of bogged down with the Fed, but, you know, I listened to the same statements that you listened to. I watched the same press conference that everybody else watched. And it's remarkable to me how different people can come away with different interpretations. Steve Leisman, who, you know, is a, is he's been pretty steadfast in his belief that the Fed is pretty much doing everything right. You know, he came away thinking extraordinarily hawkish. I did as well. I didn't hear what the market seems to hear. What do you think the market was taking their cues from? Because I'm not really sure. I think it might be a function of the fact that we're not going to have another meeting until September. Jackson Hole, yeah. But you're really not going to hear from these people in earnest. And maybe that's going to buy them some time. Maybe commodities can continue to come off and it gives them enough air cover where they can sort of say, you know what, we've done a lot of our work already, data dependent. You know, we're not going to be nearly as aggressive as the market interpreted us to be. Is that sort of what's going on here? Yeah, I think Powell acknowledged that the economic data is going to be coming in over the next two months. He, he basically said, I have the longest period of time between Fed meetings that I get to have all year. So I wouldn't say he's excited to see the data come in, but he's he's 
he's, he's anticipating the data coming in. And we all know that the data is going to start to get worse. The question is, how much worse is it? So you ask yourself the question, are we in a stagflationary environment? I mean, the answer is yes, but how bad is mm-hmm. it? And we somehow soft landing. Is there a level? Certainly there's a level where the market will be a buy and certain stocks are a buy. But I just find it ironic that you root for obviously slower economic data, but not too slow. And you root for the Fed to acknowledge that inflation is coming down so that they'll stop. But as I sit here, as we sit here today, the CME Fed fund futures, as you know, you're going to put on the screen, are still pricing in, obviously, a potential for a 75 basis point increase in September. That's a 33% probability. I know you're going to show that. And then of a 50 basis point, it's 66. There's not even anything in there for 25 basis points. So if the, if the fixed income market is correct, then the equity market is completely wrong. I guess, Guy, that's how I would put those two together. Sure. No, I agree with you. And, you know, CMA FedWatch tool, we have that up. And I'm glad, obviously, today's CME day. It's good to see. We see it on other days as well. But, you know, I'll, I'll say this again. It was last summer that you, again, one of the first voices to utter the phrase stagflation. You obviously saw something that most people didn't see at the time. But you, know, you talk about stagflation quickly. Talking about, again, two quarters of negative GDP, it's pretty significant, all right? I'm not going to play the recession game because it's boring, but the numbers are what they are. The flip side of that is the CPI print last we saw was 9.1%. Now, even if you say commodities have come off some 30% or so since those numbers sort of really took hold, you're still talking about a CPI that's going to be the mid to upper sixes, which is still three times, more than three times, what the Fed is looking for. So you talk about stagflation. I mean, you're seeing it in spades on both sides of it. It's not like it's a slowdown. I mean, this is a market slowdown and an environment we haven't seen in inflation in probably 45 or 50 years. So if you don't think you're in a stagflationary environment, you're just not paying attention. Right. Purchase power is down and the economy is going to slow, I believe, quicker than inflation is going to slow. That is the definition, in my opinion, of stagflation. And again, no environment's been the same than the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now it's all, this This more to me is a product of people aren't appreciating the Fed, not about raising rates, but the quantitative tightening that's occurring and what that means right now in the markets. And yeah, you get this brief period where the dollar can come in. I know it's rallied a little bit since, and you get these moments in time where you can kind of trade the market. But again, every one of these rallies, I feel just at these valuations in the broader market sense is a selling opportunity. I don't think you're going to miss anything if you're not long this market, because I think it'll pay to be patient here, because I don't think I think there'd be a lot of fits and starts here, guy, over the next several months. Yeah, I, listen, you know, I agree with you 100 percent. We'll see how it plays out. We get audience questions all the time, and we actually did a full screen for this, Danny. So check this out. You have thoughts. I'll answer it first. But the question really comes down to what's up with the VIX here? You know, we should be a lot higher than we are. But you know what? The VIX is really not cooperate. Well, I shouldn't say not cooperating. The VIX is trading as if we're in a really normal environment, a lot of good things going on. So the question is, um, why isn't the VIX elevated here, to, to, given what's been going on? What are your thoughts? And my thoughts this, Danny, and I'm curious as to yours. I think what happened here is, you know, the Fed telegraphed, obviously, November, December, that the pivot was in place. I think a lot of people sort of front ran that in the form of trying to get themselves long puts, that type of thing. So I think the market's set up for it. And with each passing day that you don't see effectively a disaster in the market, obviously that volatility sort of bleeds away. So I think this was a situation where people were prepared for something on the volatility side that really hasn't happened yet. I think what's going to wind up happening is people are going to sort of give up the ghost and the VIX. And we've talked about sort of 21 potentially being the floor. And that's when things get interesting. And quite frankly, that's what's happening. Do you have any thoughts on the VIX as to why it's as 
depressed as it is in this current environment? Yeah, I don't use it. I don't use the VIX so much as a trading tool. I use it as kind of a behavioral finance tool, right? It's same as like the bull bear ratios. To your point, you just made put call ratios. It's a great indicator of are, are people vigilant or are they not? And historically, as the VIX comes in, it tells you you should be buying puts in the market. And conversely, as the VIX goes up, start to sell those puts back to the market and take advantage of that volatility. So to me, it's just a measure of consumer or you know investor sentiment and how mm-hmm. people are positioned. I mean, you had you did have credit spreads come in quite a bit, just kind of what I believe is a relief rally. I think they'll start to extend back out again over time because the credit, the underlying credits to me are not going to perform well. And again, the companies that are going to need money for financing that otherwise wouldn't have got it, wouldn't have gotten it with the exception of all these government programs, including the last one where the Fed was buying literally the HYG and the JNK, though money will not be available to them. So we're going to start to see a bifurcation of the good credits and the bad credits. And I think that's a great thing. Because like I said, it's not just a stock picker's market, it's a bond picker's market. So all that kind of blends together. So I think, again, people overtrade data points on the bullish and the bearish side. And I think when you look at it in its totality, what that VIX is there, to me, it's just a measure. I don't like to trade that thing at all. I would much rather use individual stocks, but that's really what it's saying. And I think, you know, you got to play the big moves. You got to play when VIX has exploded higher, you got to wake up and say, you know what, I need to take off some of my shorts. And the same way when the VIX is going, when it is just too complacent. If it's pricing and that type that type of complacency, I think the opposite is true. So. I agree with you. I don't think, you know, we're, we never advocate trading it. You're right. But it has to be up on your screen just to sort of gauge what's going on. Obviously, you mentioned the HYG. That's another one, obviously, that's gotten itself off the mat. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. We have the great EY from SoFi. She joins us on Thursdays. Lizanne Saunders as well. Oddly enough, both these ladies put out some tweets. EY first. Job openings fell 600,000 in July to 10.7 million, estimated 11 million. Basically what she's saying, although one month doesn't make a trend, I agree, it seems as though the labor market is turning, cooling, whatever you want to say. Now, listen, you say what you want. There's still more job openings than there are people looking for jobs, and maybe that number doesn't make sense, or maybe there's some things going on beneath the surface that's adding to that. But the reality is, it seems to have peaked and it seems to be coming down. And this is something you've talked about. I think the, the job market is going to be something we have to be focused on. And maybe this is onto something. Maybe this is the start of a bit of a trend here. Yeah, it's a piece of this. You know, one thing the Fed watches overall in the, in the economy is the unemployment rate. I mean, about full employment, lack of employment, so forth. We know that 3.6% is probably the peak or the trough everyone will look at it as far as employment goes. This is another indication of that happening. I think people's takeaway last week, or I know we're more than halfway through earnings, I believe, or somewhere in that realm. The takeaway was, yeah, some people made earnings, some missed, some were in line, but there was a lot of layoff announcements, which are coming. Those are going to now start to filter in. And those aren't blue-collar paying jobs, right? Those are white-collar paying jobs, and those bigger hit to the economy. So I think you've got to look at all of these pieces of information, kind of put it together. But that certainly lends itself to what I think we're going to see, which is a trend up in unemployment. Now, if if you're a bull in this market and you think, good. I want to see 3839. The Fed's forecast is 41 or something. Not that I pay attention to them where, where it's going to be next year. That's part of the soft landing is that you'll have this step up 37, 38, 39, not cataclysmic to the economy in real time, but enough for the Fed to make it pause. So those are the type of things where you could look at as bullish and bearish. And certainly the economy is still relatively strong. But to me, it's an indication of the direction which is we're headed one way, which is higher unemployment. Yeah. And that's going to be a problem. Again, you know, I think that's probably what the Fed, I don't want to say they want it, but they need to see it in order to see that their work is being done. But in the flip side of that coin is, again, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it 
and it might come in the form, again, of unemployment going higher. We'll see how that plays out. Liz Ann Saunders is another strategist, economist that we look at. She put out a tweet as well. She's talking about the savings rate. And I got to tell you something. You know, everybody talks about the balance sheets, blah, 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 and all those things. I, I, I get it, I guess. But saving rate continues to, her words, she chose, evaporate. Lowest levels we've seen since basically this time, 2009. And I sort of remember that pretty well. I'm sure you do as well. What are your thoughts on the savings rate? Because it has trickled down ancillary effects on stocks that we watch. You know, I hadn't been paying attention to it. I love Lizanne Saunders. I think she puts out great stuff. That's an incredible stat to see because we're just the beginning potentially of an economic slowdown. In August 2009, think about it, the, the low on the S&P was in March 2009. We were starting to come out of things. We had bottomed from an economic, Europe was having their issues at that moment, but the US was starting to rebound with all, all the programs which are out there and so forth. And so that is a very scary stat and that should talk about discretionary income. But what does that mean to another component that the Fed watches, which is economic spending, retail sales, that's not a good sign. So people are starting to dip more into savings or will. That to me is a horrible sign for the economy. And that should be a real telltale sign here moving forward. We looked at the CME Fed Watch tool, but I want to put up a couple of headlines that we're seeing out of Bill Ackman and Goldman Sachs. And it's interesting. Bill Ackman's taking sort of his cues from market call or fast money or something. You know, one thing I've said for a while, although you may have seen peak inflation in the form of 91 percent in that CPI. There are two other PEs that you might want to keep in mind, and that's going to be pesky and persistent. And he chose to use the word persistent. So, you know, when Bill Ackman makes comments like this, I think you have to take note. And again, the fact that people out there, this is just sort of, you know, banging home the point we made earlier, that somehow think this Fed is going to pivot. I mean, again, I've my posited that we they're three, three and a half years behind the curve. Maybe I'm a little dramatic there, but they're definitely behind the curve. And, you know, it feels as though things are working in their favor, and they are, but it takes a long time uh, for this problem, and I'm using the word problem by choice, to get under control. And the problem is inflation. Yeah, listen, it takes, it's supposed to be a six-month lag from the time that the Fed is, when they start to raise rates, mm -hmm. has an impact on the economy. It wasn't until recently that they went 75, 75. I mean, think about it. When we look back years from now, we look at what they've done. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing because they were slow to react. That's a lot of basis points absorbed in the economy. So we haven't even started to see that filter in and we're already kind of on edge here. So those rate hikes will start to filter in already. Now the market can price it in already. It can, it can predetermine where it's gonna go and that's what the market does. It's a great discounting mechanism. But as far as the real world and what that means, it's massive. I talked about this before, lines of credit, things that people have, home equity loans, they were all were kind of, they thought capped at 3% for the last 10 years. We've had it so good for so long. And they are just now getting the first statements in this entire decade, right? Or previous decade too, where guess what? It's not 3%. You're like, what do you mean it's 3.74%? And guess what? It's about to be 4.5% the next month. So those are the things when you see Liz Ann Saunders note about savings rate and things, the consumer is going to continue to pay the price for what the Fed is doing. And those are the things that have yet to price in. So you have the market on one account trying to figure out, how to, and then you're going to have the actual consumer, which may not be an investor, but is going to be the one really that determines the path for the economy. And they're starting to get hit. So I don't think, I mean, trying to figure out the timing of when this hits in, I just, you know, trying to see what the immediate impact of it is. It's not, it's later. So I agree with that. And that's why when the administration talks about, you know, the Fed has been doing their job and that's, re that, that, that actually is not true. The, the lag is such that this move lower, the move in GDP in my opinion, the last couple of quarters has nothing to do with the Fed, but that's another conversation. I will tell you that a lot of people out there 
hearing the Fed's raising rates, it'll be like, well, it means interest rates are going higher. Well, if you look at the 10-year, and we have a chart here, obviously anything but, and again, kudos to you, because you've talked about it for a while. Your concern wasn't that rates were going to go up. Uh, it actually was rates going to go back down. And you were saying that when 10-year yields were north of 3%. And here we are. Basically, we're going to float with 2.5%. And I've been saying it for a while as well. I thought we'd get inverted to the tune of about 40 or 50 basis points in the form of 2.5% in the 10-year, 3% in the 2-year. And that's actually gotten pretty close. Two years backed up a little bit here, but I don't think that game is over. Talk to me here, Danny. What is this saying to you? Uh, you know, I can understand the relief rally in the market. Um, 10-year yields coming in, the initial knee-jerk reaction is buy the NASDAQ, uh, change my discount rate. Risk isn't as bad as I thought. To me, it's the opposite. It's what is that actually telling you? It's telling you if the Fed keeps going, which is more short end, obviously, it's going to it's going to it's going to move the long end down because things are going to slow. So to me, um, when you see a 210 inversion like this, some people may say, yeah, it doesn't signal anything. Well, if it stays that way for a while, it kind of self-fulfills a slowdown in loans, right? Why would a bank who borrows on the short end and lends in the long term make a loan? If they're going to make a loan, it's going to be much more expensive than you think to make up for that, right? So it becomes self-fulfilling that things will slow down. So to me, it's very scary. And I, if you had told me that 10-year yields were three and a half to 4%, going up 50 basis points from three rather than down, and the two-year had stayed below it, and maybe the two-year was anchored somewhere kind of where it is, if not lower, I think that's a much healthier environment, not just for lending, but the signal that it's sending the economy. To me, that indicates a soft landing. This, what I'm seeing, indicates a hard landing. And again, mixed messages coming out of the bond market versus equities, I will always take my cues from the bond get over equity market. So no question about it. Listen, three and a half percent in 10 year with two years anchored at three. I think people would sign up for that in spades because of what it suggests is, you know, things are working. The Fed's doing their job. They're not crushing the economy. There still seems to be growth in the form of yields going higher. That's actually the best case scenario. I don't think I never thought that was possible. I thought that if the 10 year did get to three and a half percent, we'd probably be talking about a two year. That's why we pushing up towards four percent. But that's obviously not happening. The flip side is happening. And again, to your point, it's not good. Now, people will explain it away like they always do. It's different this time. It's not different this time. It's actually potentially worse this time. And because we're not even talking about this Federal Reserve that's trying to, I don't know how successful they're going to be, unwind a balance sheet that was north of $9 trillion. And that factors into some of this as well, Danny. Yeah, we haven't even, I guess they're going to start September 1st. They amp up doubling the amount of treasuries and mortgage by securities that they're going to let roll off. And no, that is no way priced in this quarter half point impact that some of these Fed governors think that it's going to have. It's just not the case. He's already seen tightening conditions as a result of them even talking about this last spring unwinding. So no, I don't think they have any idea. You know, listen, I, I, I don't envy the position that they're in. And they obviously know that they were wrong about inflation is transitory. Now they're trying to make up for it in spades. What I don't understand is why you have the, the trend can be in place. I'm not defending them and I'm not obviously bullish on the market, but I think any logical person knows that the trends in inflation are going to start to move lower. Why we have to get there so quickly. Mm -hmm. Again, I get it. You want to control why have to get, and risk the economy and sending the economy into a spiral downwards, which is what we're going to see if the Fed keeps going like this. That's the part, the common sense part that I have a real problem. 
Same common sense they didn't use, that they didn't think all this money pumping into the system was going to be inflationary. And yes, Ukraine added a whole nother element. I get it. But where's the common sense on this side? So I don't want to see the economy come to a screeching halt, a standstill. But the way that we're going right now, it is. And the only way that they can make that they can maintain credibility is to keep doing what they're doing. And that's going to come at a cost, I think. Yeah, blunt instrument. And listen, you think the bond market is volatile here. I mean, look at this headline, chaos in the bond markets. And Again, these words are chosen. I mean, we didn't make this up. Look at this headline. You'll see. I mean, it is chaos in the bond market, and it's dangerous chaos in the bond market. Speak to this, because one thing I've talked about literally for the last couple of years on Fast Money, and I know we've talked about it on, on the tape and market call, is the fact that bond volatility, not only here in the United States, but globally, is out of control. Well, take a look at this, Danny. What was that? The German? German yeah. I mean, so... Germany has its own issues, obviously. Um, awful situation, Ukraine, with natural gas. They're hoarding energy already. It's having impact on their economy. So it's somewhat of a separate. But think about the chart on that. They were starting to see, obviously, there's inflationary pressures in Europe. We know that. That's not going away. But that is portending. You want to talk about 10-year yields portending something happening, happening to a local economy? That is basically telling you that things are coming to a standstill there. And Germany is a huge economy on the globe. And that has to have an impact. Again, we are so focused on every Fed meeting, what's happening at this exact moment. When you take a step back, we open this show talking about geopolitical risk. This, as far as I'm concerned, is geopolitical risk because the impact to Germany is because of geopolitical issues. So you start to look at something like that. You cannot ignore that. And when you start to think about, remember, there's always this various spread between German tenure yields and U.S. tenure yields. They kind of maintain position. So you're starting to see that correlate again as well. So. Again, it doesn't. It does not paint a rosy picture, guy, for what's ahead. Certainly in the European economy, and specifically Germany, and what they're facing. No doubt about it. You mentioned Germany, the size of their economy. I think last I looked, Germany was the fifth largest economy in the world. If you were to sort of aggregate those countries in the eurozone, you're talking about now the largest economy in the world and a population of roughly. 450 or so million. It's not insignificant what's going on in Europe, specifically Germany. And we choose, you know, for whatever reason, not to acknowledge it, not to pay attention, but you absolutely have to. And bond chaos, I didn't choose that word. Obviously, the head writers did. I mean, that is a problem. And, you know, one of the things I've said for a while, I'm shocked that it hasn't found its way into the equity market. I mean, that sort of dovetails the question we had earlier. I think it's just a matter of time. One thing that is surprising me, and Dan Nathan has had a nice call on this, Carter as well, crude oil is coming down to earth here. And, you know, we're sort of at this point, uh, I think I think we're at this line of demarcation in terms of the commodity. We're right here, effectively on the 200-day moving average. I still think, again, I still think there's another leg higher here. I can understand why people will say it's over. I'm not convinced that, you know, we have an OPEC meeting they're not going to turn the screws a little bit. And you know, I think it's just a matter of time before we see another leg higher in crude, especially if the headwind of a stronger dollar somehow abates. What are your thoughts on crude here? Yeah, I just think you're kind of in a catch-22 if crude drips lower from here. We, we saw the demand destruction in oil and commodities, right? Gasoline in the last kind of six weeks when gasoline shot up to 6 or $7 a gallon in parts of the country, we saw what that can do. And that what I thought that's what I thought was a reason for this you know, initial descent in oil down to the $90 level. If it keeps going lower from here, is it because geopolitical tensions are less? I don't think so. I think it's because the economy is slowing. I think it's because economies like Germany and all of Europe have to basically make sure that they don't run out, run out of, of gas, natural gas or energy, which has a direct correlation, obviously, to the price of oil. So no, I, I think this is a problem. If you told me that oil was going to go to 70 
I would be much more negative on the S&P and on equities, because what would cause that, I believe, would be all these economies around the globe starting to really slow down and have an impact on demand. Now, the flip side of that is if we go much higher from here, do I think it's from the economy being stronger? No, not necessarily. I think it's from ongoing geopolitical issues. So oil, oil, you're right. It is at, I mean, I didn't even know that's where it was on the chart, but this is going to be, it's going to pick away soon and it's going to tell us exactly what happened. Uh, yeah, and, and know, the, the ETF we look at, the oil service, real quick, the OIH, because, I mean, talk about volatile. I mean, this sucker has been exactly that. I mean, I still think there's value here in the underlying names. Halliburton, Schlumberger, to a certain extent, Baker Hughes, the three names that are basically 50% of this ETF. But, again, you talk about volatility. It's, you know, crude moves the way it moves, but the outside moves, the outsized move in some of the underlying equities defies logic, and we're seeing it in the OIH. I do think we found support. I think we're bouncing. If I, by definition, if I think crude is going higher, I almost think these have to go higher by definition. We'll see how it plays out. But I think you have something to trade against. The other thing that we both have been somewhat confused about, although if you really think about it intuitively, I guess it makes sense. But gold is seemingly getting off the mat now. And what's interesting is people will say, wait a second, I thought gold was this great inflation hedge. We've never been in, you know, it's been 50 years since we've seen inflation like this. What's the problem? And quickly, my take is, well, when gold was rallying, it was because inflation was not being monitored. And now that inflation is trying to be tamped down, that's obviously when gold sold off. So to a certain extent, I guess under those, the auspices of that or that definition, it makes sense. But it's telling a pretty weird story here, Danny. And I'm curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, I guess it was four or five weeks ago on our On The Tape podcast, um, Dan and I kind of went at it again on gold. It's dead. It was 1725 or 1730. I actually didn't think it would go much lower from that. It proceeded to drop about 30 or $40 from there. Has since come back. I'm not worried about it. I would never sell it at those levels because I do think it has proven at the very least that it can survive. Now, did it perform as an inflationary tool in the short period of time? No, it didn't. Um, did crypto? No, that didn't either. So neither of them did. But I think there's some confusion, I guess, where who owns the gold? Is it physical? Is it paper and so forth? And the stuff that I'm seeing was all kind of the shorts were on paper. The physical people were still trying to buy gold. So I stand by where gold is now. I'm a big believer in gold, especially two reasons, three reasons. If the Fed loses control of credibility, whatever it even has at this moment, if they lose control, that's bad. If they pivot for, for sure and they either stop raising rates and indicate that you know, rate cuts are coming mm -hmm. in the market. That's going to be a huge thing. And then God forbid we are, you know, DEFCON, I know one is the worst. I mean, I feel like we're at one and a half at this moment. If something happens geopolitically, what can happen? So I just think you have a lot of interesting factors. There's the use of gold, which is out there for use in India. There's Then there's use as a hedge. So we're somewhere here, washed out. We haven't figured it out yet, but all things being equal guy, I'm an owner of gold here and I'm a buyer. Well, for you bingo players out there, I guarantee none of you people had this, but the movie War Games is where I learned about DEFCON 1, 2, 3, 4, because I had <laughs> never freaking heard of it before. I'm about Just, to say you know, I love Matthew yes. Broderick, but I got to tell you something. I was a big Ali Sheedy fan back in the day, and you know, to me, that was the reason to watch the movie. But that's neither here nor there. Now, Danny was concerned that we weren't having enough to talk about in 30 minutes. Well, turns out, 30 minutes on the screws. So I want to thank Danny Moses, as always, uh, for joining. Danny's busy, made the time for us. You got to check out On The Tape podcast if you don't already. As I mentioned, this week in Dan's absentia, we'll be having both uh, Vinny and Porter Collins, Vinny Daniel. We can't wait for that. 
We're going to talk all things market. I guarantee we get into a Met-Yankee conversation. And last I looked, the Mets have done ugats here at the trading deadline. I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, or Risk Meets Opportunity. We're powered by Open Exchange. If you enjoy the show, send us a video that you like us, leave us a comment, whatever. We like to hear from you folks, good or bad. Typically with me, it's bad. With Danny, it's good. I'll be back tomorrow with Carter Braxton Worth and the great Tom Sosnoff. That's been fun. It will be fun. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, folks. Fun, guys. Audi on, guys. Audi 5 with you, you can't flow war games and then maybe think about Professor Falcon, how about a nice game of chess? Because that's what people need to be playing instead of this market. So anyway, Guy, thanks for having me on today. <laughs> that was okay. great. Danny Moses right. with the voices is just, too, it's just wonderful. Nothing like, we should do an entire OTT of just you doing voices. <laughs> I'll pitch that to Dan. See you All later, right. folks.